The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. <laughs> I have my own over here. It's okay. Yeah. Good evening, everyone. So, uh, welcome back again. And now we have the uh, chance to ask some questions. Uh, so, please feel free to ask questions during this retreat. Uh, uh, nothing is really off limits. Uh, you're very welcome to ask about anything you like, pretty much. So, uh, it's nice to have that freedom uh, to not feel restrained because then we can kind of get things out in the open and talk about it. Uh, so, let us get started uh, and let's see what we have tonight. This is. Okay, respected Ajahn Brahmali, could you speak more about uh, not taking refuge in an individual, but rather taking refuge in uh, the Sangha broadly? Huh? I've had trouble understanding the real application of this in the past. Uh, having fancied the idea of having a teacher, I actually didn't want to accept the, the teaching to take Sangha as your teacher huh? in the wider sense of Sangha. But your teaching today helped me to understanding uh, uh, or the beginning of it. Uh, yes, well, this is just taken straight from the suttas, really. Uh, you know, we have the idea of the triple gem, uh, and the triple gem is always the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. And these three are very closely related to each other. You start off with the Buddha. The Buddha is the one who kind of penetrates the darkness in the world, uh, draws back the veil from the world, uh, as it says in the suttas. Uh, and so he's the first person who sees that reality. So the foundational faith and confidence is really in the Buddha himself as a person. That The Buddha is just one person in the world who has seen through the kind of delusion uh, or the problem of the world. Uh, and then from that awakening experience, then comes the Dhamma. Yeah, the Dhamma is uh, then the teaching that arises from that. It is a formulation of that insight into words. Uh, it is a, you know, so that's kind of what we have now in the suttas. Uh, that's the Dhamma. And then from that teaching, uh, then there will be some people who have the same realization as the Buddha had. Uh, and those people are the Sangha. So it's just the understanding that these teachings are powerful. They have results. Uh, if you practice these properly, you will have the same insights uh, as the Buddha had. Uh, and it's kind of very touching when you read the um, Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta, the first discourse of the Buddha, the setting in motion of the wheel of the Dhamma. And then uh, during this discourse, uh, Kondanya, one of the five disciples of the Buddha before his awakening, or the five helpers, or whatever you want to call, call them, uh, he has that insight, yeah, the Dhamma Chakku arising, Dhamma Chakku Udapadi, the uh, arising of the inside, the Dhamma eye, quite literally. Yeah. And that happens during that first discourse. And then the Buddha is like, wow. <laughs> he doesn't say the word wow, but you know, uh, close enough. <laughs> the Pali equivalent of wow is like, and uh, it, that's kind of what it feels like when you read it. It's like the Buddha is surprised. Wow, he says, Kondanya understands. Kondanya understands. It's like he's almost like he's surprised that anyone is able to grasp this from a teaching because it is so profound. And you can feel that the Buddha himself is kind of inspired and elated by this. So this is the idea of Sangha. The idea of Sangha is that because these teachings are available in the world, there will be people who understand 
Yeah, and sometimes you will meet those kind of people because these people are still around. I have no doubt that there are still noble ones in the world today. And so it is like a slightly gray, it is not entirely clear cut. Yeah, on, on the one hand you have individuals, on the other hand you have the Sangha. There is a degree of overlap there because the only the way that the Sangha is expressed, of course, is through individuals. And so the, what you, it's okay to take individuals as your teachers. Someone like Ajahn Brahm, for example, it's okay. But remember that the Sangha is more than that. So if Ajahn Brahm turns out to be dodgy, <laughs> Ajahn Brahm is not dodgy, right? I, this, is the, I, that this is kind of, for me, almost impossible to envisage. But anyway, I, sometimes the impossible happens. I, I <laughs> but, uh, so, but it's just that the... The less you know of Ajahn Brahm, I know Ajahn Brahm very, very closely. I've been sitting, been with him for 30 years almost. Uh, so after a while, you get a reasonable insight into someone's character. Uh, but to the point is that because you can never really know, there's always going to be a degree of uncertainty. So even when you take someone as your teacher in this life, uh, you also know there is something behind that in the background called the Sangha as a whole. There are other people out there who have these insights uh, so that you never kind of uh, give up on this larger picture. One person never represents the whole of Buddhism. Uh, it only represents a small fraction of it. Uh, so if they turn out to be dodgy, you're still okay. You can still carry on. Uh, you don't feel a sense of despair that your teacher has despair, disappeared in the world. Uh. So it is, you know, it is not entirely clear-cut, one or the other. It's a bit of both, uh, but you try to use it wisely here. Uh. Okay, uh, next one. Venable, could you explain Majjhana, Rupa and Arupa Loka level? Uh, thank you. Knowledge, knowledge of the middle path. Majjhana, I see. Okay. Uh, all right, Rupa and Rupa Loka level. All right, okay. Um, yes, I suppose. I, if, I, if I get your question right, Majjhana, the knowledge of the middle. Uh, um, not entirely sure what you mean by that, but maybe what you're referring to is dependent origination, uh, which is said to be the middle, middle way between eternalism and annihilationism. It's kind of the middle way in that sense, uh, middle knowledge. I'm not sure if that's what you're referring to. Uh, um, but um, so if that is what you are referring to, it's a very involved subject, uh, but it is like the middle way, because what dependent origination shows you, it shows you that samsara, personal experience, continues as long as there is delusion and craving. Delusion and craving is what perpetuates samsaric existence, getting reborn, dying, and all these kind of things. But So in that sense, it is similar to things carrying on, things carrying on. But on the other hand, if you eliminate the delusion, if you eliminate the ignorance, then the craving stops, and then the whole process of being reborn stops. So in that sense, it's similar to the ending of things. So in Buddhism, the world is not either, um, it doesn't, it's, not, it's not eternalist in the sense that it must go on forever, nor is it annihilationist in the sense that you, everything comes to an end when you die. In Buddhism, it depends on what you do, how you live, what happens next. It is contingent on how you how you live and what you do in your life. Uh, 
Madjanyana, knowledge of the middle. That's, that would be one knowledge of the middle. I'm not sure if that is exactly what you're referring to, but that would be one of those knowledges. Uh, rupa and arupa loka levels. Well, these are the levels of uh, meditation. Jhana meditation, first of all, is the rupa loka or rupa avachara, is actually called in the Pali Suttas. Uh, rupa loka is more like a commentarial word. Uh, that is the equivalent rebirth, that is equivalent to the jhana levels. Uh, arupa avachara or arupa loka is then the even higher realms, what is called immaterial attainments. Uh, so you go beyond the jhana states. Uh, you give up any kind of uh, connection with the f- f- form or anything that has anything to do with the five senses, even, even the echo of the five senses in the mind. Uh, Jhana states are just the echo of the five senses. The five senses are long gone. They are gone when you enter the first jhana, but there's an echo as part of the perception, mental perception that you have. Uh, and that echo disappears when you enter the first arupa jhanas, the material realms. Uh, so these are very, very profound states. They are, you know, when you get to the rupa loka already, the jhana states, uh, you are almost enlightened at that point. Uh, very, very close. Uh, because if you bring that right view together with the jhanas, uh, then you have given up so much of the world to be able to ent- enter the jhana that what you have left, what remains to be seen, is only a tiny sliver of the world, a uh, tiny little bit left. Uh, and this is part of the reason why the jhana states, the samma samadhi, is so powerful, uh, because you have already massive insight just to get there, uh, because you have given up so much. Uh, People don't. People often misunderstand what these things are like. People think that jhana, that's just samatha and samadhi, got nothing to do with insight. Uh, but actually, no. Insight and samadhi always go together. Uh, it's impossible to separate these things. Uh, so getting to the rupa states, uh, the jhana states, uh, you are already very close to awakening here uh, because of that. Uh, so... Uh, not sure exactly what you are asking and exactly what angle you want on these things, but uh, that is what you get. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, let's go on to the next one. Okay, so getting old is giving me a lot of fear. How to deal with it? Fear at work, losing the job, fear at home, robbery, etc. Fear of falling, etc. Yes. Um... <laughs> That, I, you know, that makes sense to me, right? That this is happening when you get old. Of course, you get weaker and the body is more frail and all of these things can happen as a consequence. So yes, it leads to a lot of, uh, a lot of fear. Uh, I can understand why that would be the case. So uh, this is why the spiritual path is so important. Uh, yeah, Because all of the fears that you're talking about here, these are the fears in the world. They only exist in the world. Uh, they only exist because you are holding on to worldly things. Uh, and the more you can uh, shift your attention, shift your interest, shift your perceptions onto the spiritual life, uh, the less fear you will have of all of these things. Uh, if what really matters to you is your spiritual practice, then if you lose your job, Yay, lost my job. Now I can come to Vudaloka all the time. I can follow the talks online. I can do more meditation practice. I can do all of these wonderful things. Yeah. And you kind of, it's kind of an opportunity when you lose your job. And someone who is really wise, they will take that opportunity. Yeah. Wow, I'm so fortunate I lost my job. <laughs> this is kind of the point, right? With the 
the worldly life and the spiritual life, if you really get into the spiritual path, uh, actually turns things upside down. You think exactly the opposite of what people in the world think. And that's really cool because you know that people in the world, they're not all that wise. You know that people in the world, they're suffering a lot. Yeah, It's a probably good idea to think the opposite. <laughs> so uh, robbery at home, yeah. How wonderful that someone can use my requisites, right? <laughs> Please come in. You can take some more. We forgot to take this one over here. Take this one as well. And then kind of, yeah. And you will probably survive without those things or probably your insurance company will pay up or whatever. Who are these robbers anyway? Very often a robber might be a drug addict, yeah, because they are desperate for something to be able to feed their drug habit. And being a drug addict... I have never been a drug addict, but I can imagine it is incredibly painful existence to be a drug addict. You are hooked on something uh, that drives you so powerful, you feel completely out of control. Uh, you may think that the ordinary worldly cravings leave you out of control sometimes, but the, the, this is multiplied many, many times over if you are a drug addict. These are desperate people. Uh, yeah, it is really, really painful. Yes, it, maybe it is their fault that they got into that situation. Actually, probably isn't. Uh, because why? Because they have been brought up in a certain way. They had certain friends. They got into the wrong circle of people. This happens to all of us. Yeah, We make mistakes in life. This is just the way life is. You can't even blame people for becoming drug addicts. How can you blame them for breaking into your house when they are desperate and they don't know what they're doing? So think about this in the right way. Have compassion for these people. They don't really know what they're doing. They're blind. And we are also blind. So we're on the same boat. Maybe we're a little bit less blind. But next life, it may be turned upside down. Maybe next life, you are the drug addict, right? And they are the person who get robbed. This is kind of life for you. When you start to see people in this way, you make a human connection with people. And when you make a human connection, you start to have respect for them. You start to have forgiveness. You have compassion. All of these things come through that human connection. See yourself in that other person. You have also been a drug addict in the past. You will also become a drug addict in the future. And the reason is because we go through so many lives. All of these conditionings apply to every one of us. And once you see yourself in that other person, you have no choice but to make a human connection with them. When you make that human connection, something magical happens. At that point, you no longer judge them. At that point, you accept them into your heart, even if they rob your house. So everything in Buddhism is about changing your perspective. It's about looking at the world in a new way. It is about uh, accepting all people, understanding the suffering in the world, uh, then having compassion and metta as a consequence. Uh, so try very gently with yourself to change your perspective. Uh, look at things in a new way. Uh, yeah? Don't follow what other people in the world do, because people in the world are blind. They will say things that are not worthy of listening to. Uh, and uh, come instead and listen to the Buddha's teachings. These are much more interesting, powerful, if you want to overcome these things. Uh, fear of falling, right? Same kind of thing. It's the fear of uh, the body, fear of uh, the five-sense world going wrong. That's what fear of falling really is about. Uh, uh, you may very well fall. Uh, yeah, this is life. Part of life is falling. Part of life is hurting yourself when you get older. Uh, you're not really going to be able to avoid that, probably, entirely. You do your best to avoid it, but then it still happens. Uh, don't be surprised if it happens. And uh, make sure you have your mobile phone with you. 
that's kind of the, uh, you know, you've got to be smart about this. Uh, you can call the ambulance or whatever. Uh, so, uh, again, it shows you the limitations of the ordinary life. Uh, let go of that little bit. Uh, focus more on the mind. The mind is what matters. Uh, the mind is what you take with you into the future. Invest in your mind. Uh, don't invest in the world. Uh. Okay. Thanks, Ajahn, for giving the inspiring and insightful Dhamma talks. This afternoon you mentioned that it's not practical to interpret old age as a moment of old age. But in the Abhidhamma it is inherent that life is just a mind moment of experience. Nothing lasts, just a rising and passing away. Please elaborate and explain your view. Thank you, Ajahn. Yes, the Abhidhamma talks about mind moments. That is true. But that is not what the suttas talk about. So you have to. Dif this is why it's so important to differentiate between suttas and abhidhamma. So we don't uh, use the abhidhamma framework to interpret the suttas. Don't interpret the suttas through the abhidhamma because the abhidhamma was expressed a long time after the suttas. So you're imposing someone else's view onto the views of the Buddha. That's not a good idea. Allow the Buddha to speak for himself uh, without being interpreted through later teachings. So um, uh, that means the way that old age is used in the suttas, it refers to old age. How do we know that? Because it says in the suttas, it says that old age is defined as blotchy limbs, broken teeth, graying hair, the wrinkling of the skin. Does that sound like a mind moment or does it sound like old age? Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty obvious, right? So, uh, and it goes on like that. You're bent over like a roof bracket. That's what it says. It's kind of you, kind of you bent like this. Yeah. I don't know. You have to be careful. You, you're moving that way. <laughs> so, uh, this is clearly old age. Death is the kind of the decomposition of the body, the ending of the life faculty, the giving up of the senses and this kind of death also is death, right? Uh, it's very clearly defined in the suttas. So uh, I would not recommend people to pay too much attention to the Abhidhamma because what happens if you do that is precisely this sort of thing. You start to read the suttas with the Abhidhamma at the back of your mind and you read the suttas in a new way and you interpret it through that information from the Abhidhamma and then you start getting very confused as a consequence. So the whole mind moment idea and the Abhidhamma is really just philosophy here. In my translation of the Vinaya Pitaka, I translate Abhidhamma as philosophy, because that is what it is to me. Huh? It is a way of thinking about the world, not a way of experiencing the world. Huh? Because it says specifically in there that some of these things cannot be experienced by human beings. Uh, the number of mind moments, for example, uh, uh, you know, in, a, in, kind of in a very short span of time is so enormous, no one can actually experience these things. Uh, except it says the Buddha, but the Buddha didn't teach it, so where does it come from? Huh? <laughs> You can see there is a problem there. There's a gap in credibility, as they say here. So uh, anyway, so I, if I were you, I wouldn't bother about the Abhidhamma. I would put it to one side. Uh, there may be some interesting things in there, maybe not. Uh, but it's not really important for understanding the teachings. In fact, it can be misleading here. Yeah. All right. So, uh, dear Ajahn, I was exposed to Buddhist teachings 18 years ago and do understand anatta uh, 
do understand that there is no control over aging, sickness, etc. So how can it be self? But insight is lacking as we lay people seldom experience jhanic states. As a result, when someone abuses us, if it is me who is being abused and anger arises, back to square one. It gets better with practice, but miles away from realization of real truth. Is there any hope for lay people like us, or are we doomed <laughs> to circle around in this uh, birth and death cycle of samsara? Many things. You are not doomed. Yeah, this is kind of this is kind of Buddhism one one. You're not doomed. Doomed means like you are. You believe in fate. You believe in things kind of only have to go in particular way. Yeah. So no, you're not doomed. And really, all you have to do is do your very best to practice these teachings, and then it will take you as far as you can in this life. So yes, it is very. If you have been abused, yes, it is very hard to get rid of anger. Obviously, uh, uh, because it feels very personal. Uh, but uh, it can be shifted gradually over time. You may never overcome it completely, but you can at least reduce the problem uh, by understanding, trying to understand things from the point of view of the other person. Uh, that is really the critical thing. Uh, yeah, and very often the other person has suffering inside of themselves. They would never abuse someone else unless they had suffering in their own life. Uh, they may have gone through similar experiences themselves when they were at a certain age or whatever. Uh, um, there's always a reason why people do bad things. Uh, there's a beautiful French, I think it's French saying originally, which is something like to comprendre, to pardonner. Understanding all is to forgive all. Because uh, when you really understand where someone is coming from, uh, then you will be able to understand why they're doing what they're doing. Uh, and remember that it has nothing to do with you. If you get abused by someone, it is not about you. Another person in, the, in your position would have been abused in exactly the same way. It's not personal. It's not really about you. It is about the other person who has this powerful, compelling drives within themselves that make them abuse you in whatever way that is. And those drives are so strong that they must come out. They must be violent or whatever it is because the drive is so powerful. So uh, start off, when you see abuse, start off looking not at your own experience, but looking at someone else's experience. Look at abuse somewhere else uh, and start to understand the connection between the perpetrator and the victim. Uh, and as you start to see that, you start to see that we are in this kind of cycle where we are abusing each other, one person abusing someone else. Uh, next life, it may be reversal of roles. Uh, yeah, we have also, remember, you have also been an abuser in the past. Uh, we have all been abusers in the past. Uh, that is what is so scary. And once you start to see yourself not only as the victim, but also as the abuser, knowing that you have also been there, this may be a very painful thing to see. But it is the truth. That is when you learn to forgive. That's when you learn to have compassion, even for the terrible crimes in, in the history of humanity. Because you make that human connection again. So try to kind of unravel this with gentleness and care, having lots of compassion for yourself in the process because you have been through something very difficult. And as you have compassion for yourself, as you do that, you can start very, very gradually also to understand the perpetrator as well. So these are things that you have to move out of gradually with kindness and care. And then one day, you may not be able to give it up completely, but guaranteed you can make it better for yourself. So, um, 
Yeah, so keep carrying on. And if it is too difficult to approach these things as directly as I'm saying, then just carry on with the Buddhist practice at least. Just be generally kind and caring to others. And gradually you will build up that ability to uh, one day to deal with these difficult issues. Okay, dear Venerable Sir, when a fully enlightened being passes away, does the consciousness of that being not arise after death? Uh, remember, okay, dependent origination, right? Uh, depend, dependent cessation. Uh, it uh, sankara niroda vinyana nirodo. Uh, yeah, avidja niroda, sankara niro, nirodo. Sankara niroda, vinyana nirodo. You know, you know these sayings? Yeah, this, these are kind of, if you have grown up in a Buddhist country, you probably know these sayings inside out. So, avidja niroda, from the ending of avidja, avidja is uh, ignorance or delusion, comes the cessation of sankara. Sankaras are the volitional, the, the willed activities that we do, uh, the choices that we make in life. Uh, from the cessation of these choices, the sankara, sankara niroda, comes the cessation of consciousness. Uh, Cessation of consciousness arises, uh, vinyana nirodo comes from that. Uh, so according to dependent origination, when you're an arahant, when all the delusion is gone, consciousness will come to an end. Uh, that's what it says there. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, <laughs> you, you, you figure it out. Uh, <laughs> maybe we can talk more about this later on in the retreat. But that's this quoting directly from the suttas, right? Uh, I'll let it be there. Okay. Next one. Ajahn, I recently listened to your Dhamma talk on the development of metta. There you have explained about perception, thought, and views. Can you please explain this concept? So, uh, the, uh, w one of the suttas uh, in the Anguttara Nikaya 4 is uh, you find this idea known as the Vipalasa. And Vipalasa, the at word, means something like a distortion. Uh, yeah, the mind kind of being distorted. Um, in other words, it is not seeing according to reality. Distortion means distorted compared to reality, what the world actually is like compared to the Buddha's view of the world. So uh, we have a distorted outlook and we are born with this distorted outlook. So when we come into the world, we are born with a certain tendency to judge others, to be angry with others, to get irritated by what other people do because of that delusion, because of that distortion. So we come into the world with a, already with a problem, like I was talking about this afternoon. And so because we are come into the world with this problem, to be able to have metta, love, friendliness, kindness to the people around us, we need to change our perceptions of the world, uh, look at the world in a new way. This is the only way we're going to be able to have real metta in our lives. Uh, yeah, so this is the, kind of the idea behind this. Now, these uh, distortions of the mind, they are said to be found at three levels, according to the Sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya 4. Uh, and the three levels are perception, uh, thinking, uh, or called citta, mind if you like, and views uh, is the last one. Uh, and you can say that those three areas are the sum total of the mental content that you have. Yeah? Perceptions is like immediate things. Yeah? It's like now, I perceive this room here. I perceive people. I perceive a clock. I perceive Ajahn Isarano. I perceive Frank. 
So I perceive things, right? There's all perception, like immediate, straight away, you know what it is. Uh, but then I can think about Frank. I think, oh, Frank, yeah, okay. Remember him, he came to my retreat many years ago, first time, back in Anglesey. Yeah. I've known him for a long time. He's been driving me around. That's really driving me from Anglesey up to Newbury Monastery. Uh, he's a really nice guy. He used to be a lecturer at university. Uh, IT, no? IT, IT, right? So, so this, this is kind of then you think about Frank, right? So you have a good memory of Frank. He's a Frank is a nice guy here. Yeah. You're all nice people. I'm just Frank is right in front of me, so I kind of looking, seeing Frank, so I'm kind of thinking about that. <laughs> so uh, that is thinking, right? Thinking about the world, and that you can see how that thinking is based on your perception. Perception comes first, and the thinking arises from that perception. You perceive Frank as a nice guy. Okay, and then his memories come back. You think about it. Uh, and then you build up from that thinking, you build up a view, yeah, the view about uh, these are my friends or, uh, you know, a view of uh, whatever, a view of Buddha Loka being a good place to hang out, because, hang out may be the wrong word, but you know, you know what I mean. Uh, and so all of these things build up in this way, uh, perceptions, thoughts and views, depending on each other. Uh, so in a sense, it is like a cycle. It is cyclical. Perceptions give rise to your thinking. Thinking builds up your views about the world. And once you have a view about the world, that tends to uh, decide what kind of perceptions you have. So it's like a loop that goes on and on and on. Yeah? It's like a trap you are in. So one of the big questions is, how can we get out of that trap? Well, why do you want to get out of it? Well, the reason you want to get out of it is because all of that Mental processes we're talking about here, they're all deluded. Uh, that's the problem. And there's four kinds of delusion that this sutta talks about. Uh, one of them is seeing the things that are impermanent as more permanent than they actually are. Maybe not fully permanent always, uh, but certainly more permanent than they are. Sometimes fully permanent. Uh, so seeing permanence in impermanence. Seeing happiness where there is suffering. Uh, yeah, you think that there's so much happiness and things in the world, but maybe there actually isn't. Uh, this is kind of a very common misunderstanding. Happiness in the sense of self, yeah? Yeah, I've got to look after my sense of self because this is what uh, kind of makes me feel good. Uh, yeah, oh, this is me, yeah. I have these things. Uh, and of course, the sense of self lets you down because it always needs to be kind of supported and held up by perceptions to kind of keep it happy. And then, of course, that isn't always possible. Uh. So seeing happiness where there's suffering, seeing self where there's no self, uh, seeing this feeling that we have inside, uh, of me seeing it as self when actually it is ephemeral, always moving, always changing. Yeah. And the last one is seeing uh, beauty where there is no beauty. Yeah. Subha, seeing subha in the asubha. So these are the four areas. You could uh, expand on that in many different ways. Uh, but these are the kind of four areas. And because we have this problem in our perceptions, in our entire mental uh, outlook, yeah, uh, we need to start undermining these things. And this is a very important reason why I focus on right view at the beginning. Yeah? This is why the Noble Eightfold Path begins with right view. Huh? And why we should develop that right view, not be satisfied with, yeah, I believe in rebirth. No, actually it's much more than that. Huh? And uh, then we start to align our way of looking at the world with the way the Buddha looks at the world. And that alignment is so important, uh, because that alignment allows us to practice the way the Buddha did. Uh. So we start to change our perceptions, or we start to change our views, right? Uh, and then this whole chain of causality, perception leading to thinking, leading to views, leading to perception, that whole chain changes. Uh, yeah, we kind of, everything is moving here. Uh. And it's still a chain, but now it's a different kind of chain than what it used to be. Uh, diff different cycle of uh, cause and conditions. Uh.
part of that uh, thing is to overcome our habitual reactions to other people around us. Uh, seeing people in a new way. Uh, understanding that everyone is suffering. Uh, understanding that everyone is deluded. Uh, don't know what they're doing. Uh, they think they are creating happiness for themselves and others when actually they're creating suffering for themselves and others. Uh, that's kind of the uh, unfortunate thing in this life very often. So you start to have more compassion. Uh, and you also start to appreciate the good qualities in other people. Uh, because actually there is a lot of goodness in the world. Uh, and this is one of the great benefits of being a Buddhist monk. You see a lot of goodness because people tend to treat you well. Not always, but 99% of the time people treat you really well. I was just in North America in the US recently for about a month and I didn't really know what to expect. I never spent much time in the US before. So I, you know, when you read the papers, you have concern for worry, right? When it comes to the US, you think, jeepers, do I, am I sure I want to go there? It sounds like, a, it sounds like a kind of all these guns and all these kind of things. And, but of course, when you go there, it's just people, like everywhere else. Yeah? And, and people who are not only people, but kind people, because you're a Buddhist monk. They look after you, and they treat you well, and they do all of these kind of things. So I had a really nice perception of the United States when I went there. And that's kind of nice. And then you have a sense of metta for the people there. And because you see the goodness in the world. So it's important not to just look at the downside, the dukkha, but look at the upside. Look at the beautiful qualities in the people here. Yeah, part of the Buddhist community here. Because there's a lot of good qualities uh, in the Buddhist community. Uh, and then you build up the metta perception at the same time. Uh. All right. Uh, dear Ajahn, very grateful for your teachings. Uh, first noble truth is very clear. Uh, life sucks big time. Uh, <laughs> and is suffering even when good in all aspects. Uh, Everything is impermanent and death awaits such each moment. Way out clear, but very tedious. <laughs> Human form, which with its attendant uh, uh, miss, attendant, uh, what? Attendant makes it virtually impossible to attend Sotapanna. Was it attendant? Misuses? Misuses. Yeah, okay. All right. Anyway, okay. So makes it virtually impossible to attain misviews, maybe. Okay, whatever. Uh, unless one is a monastic. Great recollection of paramis. I see just misery around me and no hope of getting out and, it, and, it, and of it for the next trillion of years. How to be cheerful there. <laughs> Hopeful then. Thanks. Well, it is true, and I think, you know, you have a very good point here. You have a point that we focus too much on the negative things in Buddhism, and I think this is a problem very often. We focus on the dukkha, etc., etc. But um, the interesting thing is that if you focus on dukkha in the right way, it actually leads to sukkha. Yeah, because it is about understanding something, about gaining insight. It's about turning your mind in a different direction. And when you do that, you actually find out that uh, uh, you find the joy in, in contemplating dukkha. It's a weird thing, but that is how it works. Because why? Well, because you give up those things that actually are problematic. And when you give that up, you find something else, which is profound. It's like in meditation practice, one of the things that we are doing is it's kind of giving up the body. You don't really want to experience the body or the five senses in meditation. And that giving up of the body in meditation can really only happen if you see it as dukkha to some extent. And what you do find is that when you do give up the five senses in meditation, you feel so much bliss. And then you realize that the five senses were problematic. 
So the seeing dukkha and experiencing happiness are actually two sides of the same coin, but you have it to do it in the right way. So please don't overdo it. Remember the good sides of the Buddhist path. Remember to experience the joy of kindness, the joy of generosity, the joy of having a good heart. Yeah, There's so much joy in that. Be as generous as you possibly can again and again and again in your life. Because as you are generous, you start to feel this beautiful feeling inside. Sometimes it's like your heart opens up to the whole world and you get this feeling of you just want to give to everyone. I'm sure many of you have had that feeling because this is what happens in Buddhist communities when people are really generous. And you know this is a beautiful spiritual feeling. Be kind to people. Be relentlessly kind. Yeah. Because relentless kindness, try not to make it into some kind of ego trip, but relentless kindness means that you're overcoming negative qualities of the mind. Those negative qualities get get kind of, they start to, you have to overcome them to be able to be kind all the time. And uh, when you do that, uh, you start again to feel good about yourself because you know that you're kind. Don't, it doesn't matter if other people see it. It's better if other people don't see it because then you identify less with the kindness. You just do it simply because you know kindness is good. Uh, and you start to see all these wonderful things in the world. And then you start to appreciate the people around you because you know they have similar qualities. Uh, yeah. Adonis Sarano is a very senior monk. He's only two years younger than me. And he insists on washing my bowl after the meal. I don't know what to say. I feel slightly embarrassed when that happens. But, I, but of course I accept it because it is a beautiful gesture. Even if you are more senior, you can actually wash the bowls of someone junior. I would have speaking to Venerable Karunika. She is a senior, senior nun at uh, Santi Monastery. And she tells me that when she visits Bhante Sujato, have you heard about Pantasujato? Some of you have. Okay, so he's a monk in Sydney. He has the, his, his name of his uh, monastery is Lokanta Vihara, the monastery at the end of the world. Uh, it's taken from the Hitchhiker's Guide of the Galaxy, the restaurant at the end of the world. Yeah, this is kind of the idea here. So she tells me uh, that when she goes to visit Pantasujato, he washes her bowl. Isn't that nice? Pantasujato has been a monk for 30 years. Okay, Venba Karunik has been a nun for about 10 years. Uh, Still, there's a big gap there. He washes the bowl. This is such a beautiful gesture. Why not? And this is the idea of always taking the opportunity to do something kind. And, uh, you know, sometimes I do that in the monastery in Perth. Sometimes the baby monk, yeah, there's the novice, comes and gets my bowl to wash it. So it, this novice monk takes the bowl, carries it downstairs. Then I go and get the novice's monk's bowl and carry that one downstairs. <laughs> because it's a beautiful thing to do, right? And the novice monk is kind of shocked. What's going on? <laughs> so this is the idea. We start to see the beauty in the people around us. And there's a lot of beautiful qualities in an organization such as the BSV. So see those beautiful qualities. See the deeper layer. Don't allow yourself to stop at the surface. Because the surface level, a lot of things are irritating. But below the surface level, a lot of beautiful things are going on so this is part of this idea of appreciating the people around us, building up metta, appreciating yourself. The fact that you are living this life, the fact that you are probably keeping precepts, the fact that you have probably lived a good life for a long, long time. Rejoice in that. Yeah, don't take it for granted. It's wonderful that you're living like this. Then you're building up the sense of self-worth, self-esteem that you know, so many people seem to be lacking sometimes. 
So uh, be cheerful. Yeah, don't please don't take a trillion years uh, before you uh, exit samsara. Start a little bit, uh, you know, get going as much as you can in this life, uh, and then uh, see what happens. Uh, Okay, often when I meditate, I notice that I'm barely breathing and taking very shallow breaths. Once I notice this, I feel uncomfortable. Is this normal? Any tips and tricks? Thank you. Everything is normal. That doesn't mean you should do it, but everything is normal. (laughs) In meditation, you can expect to many, many different things to happen. Yeah, the breath becoming very, very shallow is a very, very common experience. And the reason is because you don't need to breathe so much anymore. You're calming down. You need less oxygen. Everything is becoming still. And so the breath becomes very shallow. And you can assume that the body knows how to look after itself. When you sleep, do you stop breathing? No. Why is that? Because the body knows how to look after itself, right? Otherwise, you can never sleep if you have to make sure that the body breathes. <laughs> so don't worry. Yeah? If you need to breathe, the body will breathe, guaranteed. So just let it go. If the breathing stops completely, don't worry. <laughs> See what happens, right? Uh, and what happens is I, either one or two things, either the body is breathing, you just can't notice it, uh, yeah, or maybe it just stops for a short while and it carries on later on. There's nothing you need to worry about. Uh, yeah, it will be, it will be fine. Uh, so if you find things becoming very still and peaceful, enjoy that stillness and peace. Uh, yeah, and often the breath will then come back again after a while and then you can carry on with your breath meditation when the breath returns. Uh, You cannot really do breath meditation when the breath is gone, but then just enjoy the peace that is there and see if you can develop that perception of peace just by being with the peace. That is possible to do as well. Uh, um, But uh, it may not always work, but it's one possibility uh, on this path. uh. So that's really all you have to do. uh. Don't be too worried. Someone else came today and they came to me and said, oh, my body starts to disappear. And I feel really worried when my body disappears. Actually, it's good when your body disappears a little bit. The body is a nuisance. Yeah? So enjoy the disappearance of the body. All right. One last question for this evening. Dear Ajahn, how do I deal with a group of relations who are bullies? I keep my distance but cannot avoid meeting them with their words they rattle my peace and shake my cultivation uh, what do i do the next time i have to meet them uh, how do i protect my peace within uh, please advise so bring some earbuds put, put them in <laughs> can't hear anything big kind of you know that's a good hint if you bring this kind of massive earmuffs yeah and over your ears you can't hear anything here yeah. um i think sometimes you just Try to minimize your contact with people who are difficult. Even if they are family members, it is okay to reduce contact. Yeah, or I've got a headache today. Yeah, or, or you know, that's kind of a, I will get a headache if I hang out with you guys. So I'm gonna, <laughs> it's kind of the same thing, right? So, okay, I better stay at home. So it's okay to reduce contact with people. Of course, you can't always avoid people. There's always going to be difficult people in the world. If it's not your relations, it's someone else. Yeah? There's always going to be difficulties. So in the end, you have to learn to deal with these things reasonably skillfully one way or another. 
But if it gets too much, if you get an overload of these negative things, then it's actually hard to deal with it because your mind gets overloaded. You can only deal with so much. If you can't deal with it, withdraw. Pull back a little bit. Don't see them. It's just too hard to deal with. Yeah, and that's perfectly fine. One of the most important things on the spiritual path is to look after ourselves, to know what we can handle. You're not, you're not forced to kind of uh, um, do certain things. But in the end, uh, the best way to deal with all of these things is to have compassion. Is to understand that a bully is a bully for a reason. And that reason is, can be all kinds of things, but it's not because they probably want to hurt you. It's probably because of their habits in a certain way. They may not even understand that they are bullying you. Yeah? They may think that they're just doing some, having some fun or pulling some pranks or having a laugh or whatever, when in fact they are bullying you. Yeah? Or they don't understand, maybe they understand that they are being a little bit unfortunate, but they probably don't fully understand the effect it has on you. Yeah? They don't actually want to do these things. Yeah? So... Um, Change your perception. Uh, have more compassion. Everyone in the world is hurting a little bit. Uh, yeah? Everyone in the world is a little bit blind. Uh, everyone in the world does things that they would rather not do deep down. Uh, I'm sometimes surprised. I look at myself and sometimes uh, I feel that I don't say things in the optimal way. You know, I would really like if I could to be kind at all times. Uh, but sometimes my mind state is such that I find it hard to be really kind at all times. Okay, you can shift your mind state and you can become more kind, but sometimes you kind of forget and it's not, you know, something comes out. Uh, and uh, you kind of recognize your own conditioning. Uh, and when you recognize your own conditioning uh, and how hard it is to change, uh, how difficult it is to change your perceptions, uh, you start to have more compassion for other people uh, because they have been born probably with these kind of attitudes into their life uh, and when you're born with this attitude actually it is very hard to get out of it uh, and because they are born with bad ideas bad ways of being hurting themselves hurting others uh, actually they have a very big problem uh, so have compassion again uh, have compassion for yourself uh, have compassion for everyone okay so that is the uh, all the questions for tonight. So I would just suggest we can maybe finish off the evening with the Arahang Samma Sambuddha, paying respect to the Triple Gem. Arahang Samma Sambuddha Bhagava Buddhang Bhagavantang Abhivademi Svakato Bhagavata Dhammo Dhammang Namasami Supatipanno Bhagavato Savakasango Sangang Namami. Mm-hmm.